Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Secrets Revealed. told you before, the gospel, and I'm talking about the true gospel of God, not the false gospel of man-made religion. The true gospel of God contains both bad news and good news. And so the apostle Paul, as he sat down there in Corinth and he, he began to write or dictate this, this letter to the church at Rome, he knew that if they were ever going to understand the true gospel that he would have to give them the bad news first, okay? And so if, if you're visiting with us, what we did is we started in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and we're plowing our way verse by verse all the way through 16 chapters of Romans. But what you need to know is that from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays out the bad news, he gives them the bad news first. You say, why would he do that? Here's why. Because when you understand the bad news of the gospel, the good news becomes all the better. Right? When you understand the bad news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, it becomes great news. All right? And so we're in chapter 2. We're still going through the bad news. So what is the summary of the bad news? We'll put it up on the screen if you're taking notes. Here's the truth. All mankind, please say all. All, all mankind, unrighteous and self-righteous, irreligious and religious, Jew and Gentile are all under God's judgment. That's the bad news, and there are no exceptions. You got to get that before you even understand the rest of the gospel. And the reason that that bad news is true is because Paul will say later on in chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's still making his case. We're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 12. Okay, so chapter 2, verse 12. He says, for as many as have, what's the word? Sin. Without law, interesting, without the law. Will also, what's the next word? Perish. You see the result of sin there? For as many have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Okay? We're going to break this verse, verse 12, in half so you can understand what Paul was saying. So look again at verse 12. He says, For as many as have sinned without the law, that's the law of Moses. You guys remember about 1500 BC, a man named Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. He comes down. What does he come down with? Not just 10 commandments. He comes down with 613 commandments. There's 613 commandments in Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. And so that's the law of Moses. That's the law, by the way, of God. And so look at verse 12 again, for as many as have sinned without that law, okay? He's not referring to the Jews in this first part of the verse. He's referring to the Gentiles. As many as have sinned without the law 
will also perish without that law. Okay, and so your next point, just so we're crystal clear, is this. The Gentiles who do not have God's law deserve God's punishment. Now, who are the Gentiles? The word Gentile means a non-Jew. Okay, so if you are not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, please raise your hand here today. Go ahead and raise it if you're a Gentile. That's like 95% of us. Okay, and so the Gentiles have been around, you know, as long as the history of mankind. But what we got to understand is that the Gentiles who don't have God's law deserve God's punishment. He's referring to the unrighteous in chapter 1. Part of who he's referring to, by the way, is the guy on the remote island that we all talk about all the time. One of my most, uh, one of the questions that's asked me the most, Pastor Mike, what about the guy on the remote island who's never heard of God? Okay, and so that's part of who the Apostle Paul is talking about. What's going to happen to that guy? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 12. For as many as have sinned, did the guy on the island sin? Yes or no? Okay, as many have sinned without the law will also, what's the word? Perish without the law. He's going to perish. <laughs> There's your answer. You say, that's not fair. He's never even heard of God. Oh, yes, he has. You remember chapter one? God has given us two strong witnesses that he exists. The witness of our conscience within and the witness of creation without so that all men are without excuse. And by the way, I had this thought this morning. Did you know Job? How many of you guys know that there's a book of Job in the Old Testament, right? Did you know scholars believe he was a contemporary of Abraham? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that line, that's the Jewish line. That's the ones who had God's law. Okay, Job lived about the same time as Abraham, so Job was a Gentile. Was Job a believer or a non-believer? He's a believer. He had the, the, the witness of his conscience within and the witness of creation without. And instead of saying no, no, no to those two witnesses, he said yes with the help of the Holy Spirit. And he knew the Lord. Okay? But the problem is the vast majority of Gentiles say no to the witness of creation without. They say no to the witness of their conscience within. And what happens, how many of you guys know God's a gentleman? He will not force his will on anybody. And so finally, the Lord woos and draws and gives light and gives light. No, no, no. Finally, the Lord says, fine, have it your way. And what we saw in chapter 1 was that because mankind has said no to God, because man gave up on God, God gave up on man. And he let him loose to fulfill the vile lusts of his heart. And that caused man to go into a downward spiral of self-destruction. And so, look at verse 12 again. What's the result of man saying no to God? As many as have sinned without law will also perish without the law. Now, listen, listen. Unless... Unless God intervenes by his grace and the Gentile responds to the light that God gives to him. For example, 
Samuel Morris. By the way, have you ever heard of Samuel Morris? Can I see your hand as well? Because I, yes, yeah, about, about the same. Samuel Morris, his original name was Prince Kabu. He lived back in the late 19th century in West Africa. So we're going back about 100 years now. And he was the eldest son of the tribal chief of the crude tribe, a pagan tribe, a godless tribe, there in Liberia, Africa. Again, end of the 19th century. Uh, Prince Kabu was abducted by a rival African tribe. He was taken captive and he was in prison. While he was in prison, he was just a boy. While he was in prison, they tortured him. And they caused him to engage in forced labor. And so I'm going to let Prince Kabu, the young man on your screen, I'm going to let him tell you the rest of his story. Here's uh, his words from his biography. So remember, he's in prison. There's a rival African tribe that has beaten him, torturing him. Here's what he says, quote, After many whippings, I was so weak I could no longer stand. I was tied to a wooden cross and beaten. I actually began to look forward to death. At least I would be released uh, from this unbearable pain. As I hung over the grave they had dug, I could feel myself slowly dying. I love this. Then suddenly a bright light appeared over me. The ropes miraculously fell off my hands and feet. I heard a voice call my name and it told me, run. All of a sudden I felt strong. I ran as fast as I could into the jungle and hid into the hollow of a tree until night came. I now had time to think about what had happened. What caused the bright light? Who had spoken to me? How did I become strong so quickly? I didn't have any answers, but I knew I must run far away. If I returned to my father, the enemy chief would kill my entire tribe. As I stepped out of the hollow tree into darkness, I was amazed the bright light that shone on me was still there. It guided me through the night. After walking for many days, I came to a farm. A young worker greeted me and took me to his boss. The boss gave me clothes to wear and a job. I noticed there was something different about the young farm worker. I often saw him kneeling on the floor. This is a little boy from a pagan African tribe. He didn't know what this meant. He's like, what's this guy doing? I often saw him kneeling on the floor. He told me he was praying to God, his father in heaven. He invited me to go to church with him. I went and found the presence of God there. It all began to make sense to me. I now know it was Jesus who saved me from my captors. Jesus was the light who guided me through the jungle to my new home. As I began to learn more about Jesus, I asked him to be my savior. After I was baptized, an American missionary who was teaching me gave me a new Christian name, Samuel Morris. Isn't that amazing? And here you have a Gentile who responded to the light that God gave him, and he was given more light and more light until one day he actually heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and he was born again. What do you call that? that that's what you call a God who is not willing that anybody should perish. If they would only say yes to the light, the revelation that he has given. So Samuel Morris eventually made his way over to the United States of America. While he was there, uh, here, he went to Indiana, 
and he went to Fort Wayne, Indiana. He entered into Taylor University. He began to share his testimony of how Jesus saved him, and a revival broke out at Taylor University and throughout the entire town of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then, not only that, people start coming around from all over. They want to hear the testimony. They want him to pray uh, for them. This, this young man's future, he's only about 20 years old. It looks so bright. And one day, while he was in college, he contracted a severe cold. It wouldn't get better. And eventually, it got worse. And God took young Samuel Morris home at the age of 20. But his life so impacted his friends there at the college. Many of them said, I'll go to Africa. And they went over and did the work that Samuel Morris dreamt that he could one day do. They went and shared the gospel with those in West Africa. Ladies and gentlemen, here's my point in case you missed it earlier. The crew tribe was a pagan tribe. Prince Kabu had never heard the name Jesus, but God gave him light. And as he followed the light, it led to the gospel. It led to him receiving Jesus. God has given every man a certain measure of light. If man responds to the light, he'll give him more light. The problem is that most men say no to the witness of their conscience within, the witness of creation without, and they remain under God's judgment. That goes for Gentiles, and that goes for Jews as well. Look at verse 12. He starts off the first half of the verse talking about Gentiles. Now the second half of the verse, he's speaking of the Jews. He says halfway down verse 12, and as many as have sinned in the law, in the law of Moses, they will be judged by that law. If you're taking notes, here's your next point. Follow the logic of Paul. First it was the Gentiles, now the Jews, who do have God's law. Guess what? They deserve God's judgment too. Does the fact that a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fact that he possesses God's law, does that automatically make him righteous before God? Yes or no? No, look at verse 13. He says, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the, what's the word? The doers of the law will be justified. And so the fact that the Jew possessed God's law, hey, that didn't matter. He had to practice God's law. And if he wanted to be justified before God, listen, if you're with me, can you say amen here? If he wanted to be justified before God, he had to practice the law perfectly. 613 laws. He could not violate any of them at any time during his whole life. Now listen, there has never been any Jew or Gentile for that matter who has ever perfectly kept God's law. What is Paul's point here as he's sharing the bad news? The point is it's not just the Gentiles who need to be saved. It's the Jews also who need to be saved. All men, listen, all men, women, teenagers, boys and girls, they need to turn from their sin and turn to the only one who ever perfectly kept all 613 laws. His name is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. 
Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you're new to Calvary, this is not about man-made religion. I will always, every single Sunday, point you to the only one who matters, and that is Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. He lived the life you and I could never live. Perfection. He died the death. You and I should have died. So, Paul now goes back to the Gentiles. You'll see throughout the chapter, he keeps skipping back and forth. Okay, the Gentiles did not have God's law. Some of them never even heard of Moses. Okay, so by what standard will the Gentiles be judged? Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the law of Moses, very interesting here, by nature do the things in the law. Okay, and so sometimes... There are Gentiles who do not have a Bible who honor their mother and father. Sometimes there are Gentiles who do not have a Bible who live their whole life and they don't kill, murder anybody. Sometimes there's Gentiles even who don't steal. Okay, and so these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Verse 15, who show the work of God's law Written in their, what's the word? Hearts. And their, what's the word? Conscience. Underline it, highlight it, circle it. Very important. Their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or excusing them. And so granted, the Gentiles, those who are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they don't have God's law, right? But the fact of the matter is they do have something else. Verse 15 says they have God's law written on their hearts. If you're taking notes, here's your next point. Let's go one more point ahead. The very next one. And that is that the Jews had the law of God in what? But the Gentiles had the law of God in what? Conscience. Do you see Paul's argument here? By the way, if Paul was an attorney... I mean, I mean he, he would be like the best attorney in the world, the way he lays this all out. In fact, I, I heard in, in some law schools that they actually study Romans to prepare these young men and women to become attorneys. It's so logical. And so the Jews had the law of God in code. That's the Bible. The Gentiles had the law of God in conscience. That's God's law written in their hearts. What is a conscience? If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, a conscience is that inward sense that some behavior is right and some behavior is wrong. And so, what happens, ladies and gentlemen, you can answer out loud, what happens when we violate our conscience? We feel what? Guilty. That was only like a third of you. Now, that worries me. Because if only a third of you say you're feeling guilty, that means that two-thirds of you may be sociopaths, okay? <laughs> so let me try this again. Whether you know Christ or not, God has written his law in our heart. There's a basic moral code. We know some behavior is right, some behavior is wrong. When we vi- if we have a healthy conscience, if we haven't sinned against it over and over and over, Right? Because some people, they lie and they feel guilty, and then they, they lie again, they feel a little less guilty, then they lie again, and now they're feeling pretty good. And they can lie all they want, cheat all they want. 
and then they make up their own ethic. Okay, but someone with a healthy conscience, right, when they, they sin against their conscience, then they feel, go ahead, guilty. They feel guilty. Guilt's good, by the way. Why is our, why is our culture always trying to stuff guilt down? That's a gift from God. That's a warning light. Hey, stop it, stupid. <laughs> You're going to mess yourself up. And so, as it says in verse 15, our conscience bears witness to this moral law that it either accuses us or excuses us. And so that's why sometimes when someone lies, they, they feel bad about it. When they cheat, they feel bad about it. But when they tell the truth, even though it's hard, they think later on, man, I did it. I told it. I didn't try to cover my gluteus maximus. I actually told the truth, even though it caused some pain. And you know what? Now I feel good. That's your conscience bearing witness. Or I actually studied for the test, and I took it without look, looking at my neighbor, and I got an A. I feel good. That's your conscience bearing witness. And so it either accuses or excuses us. And by the way, where does that sense of right and wrong come from? According to verse 15, it comes from God. I love C.S. Lewis. I especially love Mere Christianity. And if I just be honest with you, a lot of his books, I have to read the paragraph 50 times to understand what he's saying, okay? But Mere Christianity, uh, he kind of keeps the, the, the cookies on the bottom shelf. I love Mere Christianity. And this is what C.S. Lewis says in that book. Conscience reveals to us a moral law whose source cannot be found in the natural world, thus pointing to a supernatural who? Lawgiver. Lawgiver. So the fact that you, inside, you know some behavior is right, some behavior is wrong, there's a moral law. If there's a moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver. That's why people who don't have a Bible are without excuse. Because God's law is written on their hearts. They have a conscience. Listen, you don't have to be saved to, to, to do right. Lots of people do noble acts all the time. They don't know the Lord. I mean, right? Here's an example. Guy's driving down I-95. All of a sudden, there's an accident in front of him. Cars are flipping over. What does he do? He's never been to church. He's never even read the Bible. What does he often do? He pulls off to the side of the road. He jumps out of his car. He runs up to the accident scene. The car is on fire. He grabs the woman, and he pulls her out to safety right before the car explodes. Some reporter puts a microphone in the guy's face. Why'd you do that? You could have been killed. Right? We've seen this on the news a lot. What do we always hear? Something like this. I just knew it was the right thing to do. Where does that come from? Verse 15, God wrote it on his heart. And by the way, that's why when the same guy lies or cheats or looks at pornography, he feels guilty because God wrote that on his heart as well. And so here's my point. On the day of judgment, everyone will be judged by God's law, either by God's law in code or God's law in conscience. I love Chuck Swindoll, and I love his commentary, and so check this out. I know it's a long quote, but I had to share this with you. At the end of days, when the final verdict is rendered, 
the deeds of each person will have been weighed and found lacking. Right? Okay, so just so you know, no one earns their way to heaven. All right? Ignorance of the law is, what's the next two words? No excuse. Each person will be judged according to his or her knowledge of right and wrong. And by any standard, I love it, I love it, I love it, either the law of Moses or the Gentiles' own conscience, each person will be found guilty. Now, when will that final verdict be rendered? Paul tells us in verse 16. Check it out. In the day, if you're looking at verse 16, just say amen so I know you're there. All right, when will that final verdict be, be rendered? In the day when God will judge, doesn't say maybe, <laughs> he will, will judge the secrets of men by who? Jesus Christ. Not Muhammad. Not Buddha. Not the Dalai Lama. Right? Not anybody else. All other religions, ladies and gentlemen, are a farce. I'm not disrespecting people here. I'm disrespecting a system of works, man-made religion that leads to hell. That's all I'm, I'm disrespecting here. A system, a false religious system. No, the truth is, on the last day, God will be standing there with his one and only son, Jesus Christ, according, Paul says, to my gospel. And so the day is coming. It is absolutely inescapable. Every single man, every single woman will one day stand before their creator, eyeball to eyeball, and we will give an account to God for our lives. Those who had a Bible will be judged according to the things in the Bible. Those who did not have a Bible will be judged according to their conscience. That day is coming. No one can ever escape it. On that day, the truth, the whole truth, <laughs> nothing but the truth is going to be revealed. And on that day, everything that was hidden is going to come to light. If you're taking notes, on Judgment Day, secrets will be revealed. You guys ever heard the, the phrase, he got away with murder? Guess what? He didn't. I mean, this life's a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Eternity's forever and ever and ever. And ever and ever and ever. Okay? He didn't get away with murder, believe me. And so, the husband who had the affair but never told his wife will be exposed. The employee who stole money from work and never got caught, that'll be exposed. The politician who made all the promises and didn't keep any of them when he was in office, that'll be absolutely exposed. Right? The priest who molested the little boy and then manipulated the little boy to, to keep quiet, he will be exposed. The pastor who for years looked at pornography on Saturday and then preached the word of God on Sunday, that fraud will be exposed. All dirty little secrets will come to light on that day and there will be no excuses, ladies and gentlemen. 
Now, my heart is burdened as a pastor because I want you to know God's word. I don't want anybody on the day of judgment to come up to me. Pastor Mike, I didn't know. Can you go first? I'll hide behind you. <laughs> no. And by the way, this is why I say this a lot, but by my heart's burdened. This is why I don't give you little pep talks on how you can win in life. You all walk away feeling good about yourself, but you haven't learned anything from the Word of God. No, we will be judged by the contents of this book, and we got to learn this book. We got to come and we got to sit down and we got to bring our own Bibles and we got to look at it and we got to have our hearts humble and we got to ask the Lord, speak to us, Lord, from your word. Because in that day, pep talks won't matter. But your knowledge of God's word will matter. Now, I got to go a little deeper here so nobody misunderstands me, all right? In verses 5 and in verses 16, where we are, Paul is specifically talking about the judgment that John will later call the great white throne judgment. If you're new to the Bible, stay with me here, okay? There's two general resurrections. There's the resurrection of the just or the redeemed, and then there's the resurrection of the unjust or the unredeemed. The resurrection of, and by the way, there's two general judgments, okay? And so the resurrection of the redeemed takes place before the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. The resurrection of the unredeemed takes place after the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. There's two different judgments. Paul, in verse 16, he's talking about the great white throne judgment. That's the judgment that happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And concerning that judgment, here's the sad verdict for everybody who's there. Anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. Now, hopefully, somebody right now is thinking, okay, how do I get my name in that book? That's a pretty important question, right? How do I get my name in that book? Okay, here's, here's how. You stop trying to earn your way into God's good graces. You stop trying to earn your way to heaven. You stop trying to keep a religious list so that God will accept you. You, for once and all, once and for all, you're done with man-made religion. And you say, Jesus Christ, you're my only hope. I turn to you. And you turn to him in repentance and faith, and you embrace what he did on the cross as for you. You acknowledge the fact that he rose again the third day, and you confess him as your Lord. If you'll do that, you'll never have to worry about standing at the great white throne judgment with the unredeemed. No, you'll get to stand at another judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. That judgment, Paul's going to talk about later on in Romans 14. We'll put that one up on the screen as well. The judgment seat of Christ says, for we. Okay, who's we? He's talking about Christians here. Believers, authentic believers. For we shall all stand before the great white throne judgment. Is that what it says? No, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we're not going to get off that easy because it still says, so you know. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. 
And so at this judgment seat of Christ, okay, we will still give an account for our lives. We still will be judged according to our works. But the judgment will determine whether or not we're going to get rewards in the thousand-year reign of Christ or whether we don't get rewards, okay? That's the judgment for our works. Did you live for Jesus Christ with everything you had, right? Did, did, you, did you join a local church, whatever local church God led you to? Did you put your roots down there? Did you connect, serve, grow, and give? Did you invite people to come to know Jesus Christ? Did you spend time with the Lord in prayer and in his word? Did you, did you like, the, like the first century church, did you devote yourself to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer? But did, were you active like, like Phil and Louise, actively following Jesus Christ? Listen, none of that will get you into heaven. The only thing that gets you into heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ. But all of that will give you some really nice rewards in the kingdom age. And so we, we will be judged according to our works. But here's the good news. We won't be judged for our sins. You say, why not? Because somebody already was judged for our sins. In fact, he took all the sins that you ever committed and I ever committed into his body on the cross. And he suffered died, but right before he died, he said, it's paid in full. And so when you recognize that and you turn to Christ, he forgives all your sins, past, present, future. He even, listen, he even forgives the secret sins that you committed. You say, time out, Pastor Mike. Okay, so what you're saying is that when I stand eyeball to eyeball with Jesus Christ, that those hidden secret sins that I committed, okay, they're not going to be exposed? Listen, why would God expose anything that he's forgiven you of? Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know what you get on the judgment day? You get a big old hug and kiss. Why? Because you're so good? No, because he's so awesome and great. That's why. Right? We, we ought to be right now thanking God for his grace, right? Praise the Lord for that. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Now, some of you right now, though, are thinking, well, does that mean... And I can commit some more secret sins. Um, no, that means you need to get saved. Because your religion is just a farce. I mean, honestly, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God comes in and changes the, the, the wanter. You know, if you want to go this week and engage in some secret sin with somebody... You need to seriously question whether or not you're really saved or not. And by the way, there's some great verses for you in chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. No, God's grace motivates us to live for him. And so look at verse 17 now. He's going back to the Jews. 
He's dismantling all the arguments. He says, indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and you make your boast in God, and you know his will, and you approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Right? He's talking here to the self-righteous Jew who thinks he's all that, and the Apostle Paul takes this guy out at the knees in verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? By the way, I had to look that one up. Here's what I found out. That the Jews were once and for all cured of their idolatry during the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. When that happened, when thousands of them were slaughtered and thousands more were deported up into Babylon, and they were there for 70 years before coming back home, after that, because they, they did all that, by the way, because they were idolaters. They kept bowing down to false gods. So they were carried away into the Babylonian captivity. Well, when they came home after that 70 years, they were forever cured of idolatry. You will never find a Jew who bows down to an image. But, you know, what was, when I looked this up, what was common in Paul's day? is that some Jews would break into pagan temples and they would steal pagan artifacts and they would sell them for personal profit. And Paul says, hey, you abhor idolatry, but are you robbing temples? Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, the law of Moses, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Now, everybody, can you just look at me for a second, please? All right, when someone says one thing and does another, that person's called a what? A hypocrite. He's talking about self-righteous Jews who are hypocrites. And what's the result? Look at verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. So even though the self-righteous Jew possessed the law of Moses, he wasn't practicing the law of Moses and the result of his hypocrisy was like people were saying, whatever, you keep your Judaism, you keep Yahweh, I don't want anything to do with it. And that leads you to your next point, by the way. If you're taking notes, that is hypocrisy repels and humility attracts. Before we beat up any more on the Jews, can I just say that Christians are just as guilty of this? What turns unbelievers off the most about the people of God? Hypocrisy. What turns unbelievers off the most? It's a Christian who thinks he's better than everybody else. It's like, oh, no thanks. What turns off unbelievers? It's a Christian who points out the sins of others but hides his own sins. 
It's a Christian who says one thing and then does another, okay? And so we don't want to be like that. Listen, I, I understand that at Calvary Port St. Lucie, we'll never have a perfect church. But you know what we can have? We can have a sincere church. We can have a church that's filled with people who are humble and real. We can actually be a church where people understand the fact that, no, we're not better than anybody, that we're all sinners saved by grace, that the ground at the cross is completely level, and we, 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 we can be known as a church of people, right, who can relate to people who are still struggling with sin, and we can actually say to them, you know what? I, I used to struggle with the same sin. In fact, you know what? If I'm honest, I still struggle with some sins from time to time. Right? What, what, will, what will happen then? What will happen then is that we won't repel people in poor St. Lucie and the Treasure Coast. We'll attract them. And before you know it, we'll have to add a fourth service on Saturday night. Why? Because people understand that, no, we're not perfect, but we're authentic, we're genuine, we're sincere, and we actually love them. Right? That attracts people. Self-righteous religious attitude doesn't attract anybody. Now, the self-righteous Jew reads verses 17 through 24, and guess now what he says? Well, Paul, I've been circumcised. Therefore, God accepts me. And so Paul takes that guy out at the knees too. Look at verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law... <laughs> But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become what? Uncircumcision. Here's your final point as we begin to wind down here. So applicable to our lives today. And that is an outward ritual, i.e. circumcision, meant nothing if it did not reflect an inward change. A Jewish couple has a boy, eighth day, they circumcise that young man. The problem is that many of those young men grew up, and even though they had the outward sign of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17, even though they had that outward sign, their hearts weren't changed. Their lives weren't changed. And again, before we beat up on the Jews, Christians just as guilty what is the outward sign in Christianity? It's baptism. Baptism is supposed to be an outward sign that reflects an inward reality, an inward relationship with Jesus Christ. But what happens? Just like the young Jewish man who gets circumcised and then grows up with no heart change, no life change, so we have so many people who get baptized, but their heart doesn't change and their life doesn't change. What does that mean? That means they just got wet. <laughs> an outward ritual means nothing if it does not reflect an inward change. He says in verse 26, therefore, if an uncircumcised... Now, this is why Paul, I think, needed his own security guard. This guy's bold. He says to Jewish people... There in the first century. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, I'm going to fill in the blanks here so you understand this very difficult verse. He's talking about a Gentile believer in Jesus Christ who has the Holy Spirit living inside of him, okay? So therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps 
the righteous requirements of the law. So if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, he's helping you to live right, okay? Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, right, self-righteous Jew, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Paul says God prefers a Gentile believer who's never been circumcised and yet is faithful to God over the Jewish man who has been circumcised and yet is unfaithful. Listen, what good is the outward sign of circumcision if you're not living for God? I, I'll um, illustrate it this way. This is the outward sign of my marriage covenant with my wife. Okay, and so we said I do 26 and a half years ago, and we exchanged rings, and so for 26 and a half years, actually a little bit longer um, since we were engaged, but I've been wearing this outward sign. But what, is, what, what good is the outward sign if there's no inward reality? Right? Some guys put the ring on, but you know what they do when they go to the mall? They're always checking out all the women. And at work, they're always flirting with the girls. And some of them are getting in bed with those same girls. What's the use of the outward sign if there's no change of life and no change of heart? So Paul says that to the Jew concerning circumcision. What's the use of your circumcision? Paul says that to the Christian concerning his baptism. What's the use of your baptism? Paul would say the same thing to the married guy who wears the ring. What's the use of your ring? You know what this does? This reminds me every single day that I have only had one love my entire life. She's out there in the foyer somewhere. And I do my dead level best to honor her in my thoughts. And I have always, for 26 and a half plus years, always been faithful to my wife. Why? Because I'm so good? No, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of me and he's helping me keep the righteous requirements of the law. So this accurately represents what goes on inside of my heart. Right? That's what God is saying here. So as the worship team comes out, last two verses. He says, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. I love it. Verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one, what? Inwardly. That's where it's at. Circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from who? God. God wants to change your heart. Do you know how he changes your heart? He changes your heart when you sincerely turn from your sin. And you turn to Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And then the Holy Spirit of God comes down. And he works in you. He changes you from the inside out. He helps you to be authentic and sincere and genuine, not perfect. He helps you keep God's word. Maybe you're here today and you've been baptized. Maybe you receive communion on a regular basis. Maybe you even wear a cross around your neck. 
Hey, all those outward signs, they're great. But do they reflect an inward reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ? That's the question. Does this make sense, ladies and gentlemen? Okay, so we don't have time for an invitation. We're out of time. But here's what I'm going to do. After the closing chorus, there's going to be prayer partners up here. They're available for, for anybody who has any need, any prayer need. Please take advantage of our prayer partners. They would love to pray for you. But specifically, if you're here today and you don't know where you stand with God, listen, honestly, if, if you don't know, am I going to be at the judgment seat of Christ with the redeemed or am I going to be at the great white throne judgment with the unredeemed? If you don't know that, don't get in your car and go home. Get that settled. One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.